2009, November 2nd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 27. Is there life on Mars? So at this point, we're uh, we're in Lecture 27. We're more than halfway through the quarter. Um, I've already begun <laughs> receiving email from other of our class uh, members, those who have actually been following along by downloading the podcast who are not members of the Ohio State community, but nonetheless who have been listening along. Um, someone sent me an email from this class. I'm not sure who it was. I pointed out last week that uh, on the iTunes higher education site, we've been like uh, number 25 or so in the top 100 higher education podcast. So I guess someone's listening. So we'll do a little sort of anonymous shout out to any of those people who happen to be listening in on this lecture. Certainly getting more interesting. Last Friday, we talked about the planet Mars. We talked about the deserts of Mars and the fact that Mars is a cold, dry world with a very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere. But the question was whether Mars could be a place to have life. And so today's lecture is going to ask the question, is there life on Mars? It's always dangerous to start a lecture, title it with a question, because that seems to me that I'm going to somehow answer this question during the lecture. And I'll be perfectly upfront with you. The answer is, if you want to leave now, is we don't know. But... What this lecture is about is where our ideas about life came from and where they are going in terms of the massive program of exploration, which is aimed at trying to turn I don't know into we know and then really find what that answer is. So this lecture is about the search for life on Mars, the idea of life on Mars. The idea that Mars is habitable is actually a very old one. We'll see a little bit of the history of this. It comes from the first telescopic observations in the 18th and 19th centuries and persisted well into the 20th century. This this sort of meme, this idea that Mars was inhabited by intelligent beings is a very persistent one in the popular culture. However, when the first space probes flew by the planet in the 1960s, it basically showed that there were no Martian canals, that Mars was in fact a cold, dry desert world. And so once we got to that point, we had to sort of change our opinion about how we were going to search for life on the Red Planet. Viking landers were sent in the 1970s. These were custom-designed with experiments to search for signs of life, and they found no conclusive evidence. But they only looked in two places, and there are more questions raised than answers, and we'll see what those are. Some other tantalizing evidence of Mars life. A few years ago, a Martian meteorite named ALH-84001 came up with controversial evidence of possible past biological activity on Mars. We'll look at that and see what the current status of that argument is. And of course, future Mars missions are now being designed based on what we have learned about the planet in the last few decades that are hopefully going to give us much more information about this question of what is going on as far as the question of life on Mars. So let's look a little bit. I think it's always good to see where our ideas come from, even if sometimes those ideas can seem a little crazy at the outset. They are very informative in many ways. William Herschel was probably the greatest astronomer of the late 18th, early 19th centuries. He was the discoverer of the planet Uranus with a telescope. He was a a German astronomer who actually emigrated to England. His discovery of Uranus made him initially famous. He got a lot of royal favor. The royal favor, by the way, was George III, who is well known from American history. Uh, But it was also, I think, William Herschel and his sister Carolyn are are two of my big heroes in astronomy. They're really not as appreciated outside astronomy as they should have. Their accomplishments as observers are on a par with the theoretical accomplishments of people like Newton and Kepler and Tycho. They weren't as foundational, perhaps, 
to terms of physics, but physics has always seen itself as macho and foundational. But in terms of really far-sighted observational skill, you go back and you can read William Herschel's papers in the Transactions of the Royal Society. Some of these are more than two centuries old. And even though he doesn't have the right answers all the time, he has hit upon the important questions that have to be asked just about every single time. And nowhere do you find this in any, any subject I've ever gone into where William has done something, I found that he's always been right on top of the mark in terms of the questions. And that's certainly true of Mars. I had a little fun this weekend rereading some of his early papers on Mars. And, and they're quite far-sighted, even though if we don't agree with their conclusions, what he was able to accomplish was remarkable. With his telescopes, Herschel discovered the polar caps on Mars. They had been seen by others, but it was Herschel who recognized what they really were and mapped out their seasonal variations. He measured the rotation of Mars, found it to be a little over 24 hours like the Earth's. Here's the thing I didn't realize. He measured it to within a precision of approximately one minute of its present modern-day value. That's a phenomenal achievement. He measured the axis tilt of Mars. Mars's orbit is tilted by about 24 degrees. Earth is about 20, mostly, actually closer to 25 degrees. Earth is 23 and a half degrees. And Herschel recognized right away that meant Mars had to have seasons like the Earth. He also did a series of observations, really, really hard ones, where you watch a star dis disappear behind the planet. If the planet has an atmosphere, it will flicker slightly as it passes through the layers of the atmosphere before it disappears behind the body of the planet altogether. Other people had done that observation and claimed that Mars had a substantial atmosphere. Herschel repeated the observations and found that the atmosphere was not as substantial as had been previously claimed, probably thinner, but it definitely had an atmosphere. So all of the basic pieces of Mars as a planet with seasons, a planet with an atmosphere, were in place with Herschel's observations. When he saw the seasonal variations on the surface planet variations he saw, he thought, you know, maybe Mars is inhabited. Now, we don't want to read too much deep insight into this because if, in fact, you read a lot of Herschel's stuff, you find out he put inhabitants almost everywhere. So he was kind of indiscriminate about that. But his comment in a, in a talk before the Royal Society, he opined that perhaps, quote, its inhabitants probably enjoy a situation in many respects similar to our own. So right away, the assumption that Mars not only might be inhabited, but in fact must be inhabited, entered into the European consciousness. And there it really lodged and lodged in hard. It's one of those ideas that's really hard to get loose and really grasp people's imagination. The next big advance that's of relevance to us in this question of the idea of life on Mars comes from an Italian astronomer of the 19th century, Giovanni Schiaparelli who worked, he was the director of the Milan Observatory, was trained in Germany, he was a superb telescopic observer. Again, this is all naked eye observing. They're not using photographic plates. They're observing with the eye, and they're watching for just those moments when the atmosphere is super still, and you get a suddenly Mars snaps into sharpness before all the swimminess and what we call the seeing of the atmosphere blurs the image out. In 1877, he published a, a map of Mars that he had made where he was labeling the various dark and light features, and he gave them Latin names and fairly fanciful names that turn out to be the names that have stuck in the nomenclature for the surface features of Mars to this day. But he also saw a series of features that, to his eye, during the very beginnings, the very best seeing, seemed linear, meaning they were just simply long, thin structures. Now, in Italian, he called them canale. Now, it's very clear from Schiaparelli's writings, and I may have given the wrong impression on Friday, that when Schiaparelli meant canale, he meant channels. He meant geographical features which are natural in origin. 
He'd never thought of them as Martian-made, meaning artificial, artificial constructs. Canale in the sense of the canals of Venice, for example. Giovanni really, and, and throughout the rest of his life, in fact, in discussions with the next person we're about to meet, he never committed to the idea of whether there was life on Mars or not. He thought a little bit about it, he spoke about it a bit, but when it came to these canale, uh, basically he felt they were natural features of the geography of Mars. Now, it's unfortunately that canale got mistranslated into the English as canals. It can be used as the word canals, but it had the meaning of canals immediately brings to mind, again, the canals of Venice, artificial canals like the Erie Canal. And people thought, ah, those are purpose-built structures. And that idea, once it lodged in the consciousness of Europe, is still present to this day, although it, much less than it is, is now pretty much the province of cranks. But it was a very serious scientific question at the end of the 19th century. And it was a question which was picked up by this gentleman here, Percival Lowell, who lived at the end of the 19th and into the year 1855 to 1916. Percival Lowell was a scion of the famous Lowell family of Boston. He was an extremely wealthy man. His brother, Abbott, was uh, a president of Harvard. Uh, there's a little uh, anonymous uh, poem that's often a little bit of doggerel about the Lowells as to give you their idea of their stature is the poem goes I come from the city of Boston the land of the bean and the cod where the Lowells talk only to Cabots and the Cabots talk only to God well the Lowells were probably two of the most wealthy one of the wealthiest families in the United States you know think think your dot com bazillionaires and this is the 19th century version thereof Percival Lowell was trained in mathematics at Harvard he was actually quite a good astronomer and he really latched onto this idea of observations of Mars to understand the surface of Mars. And he realized that the way you made headway without using photography, with using the naked eye to observe Mars, the best sight you're going to get is where the air is clearest and thinnest. And that meant going to high-altitude sites. And Lowell was one of the first people to really understand the worth of going to high-altitude mountain sites for observatories. This is not something nowadays is commonplace, but at the end of the 19th century was a somewhat radical idea. Only the Lick Observatory, really, and a couple of observatories in Europe really started cottoning to this idea. Well, as a wealthy man, he basically could go wherever he wanted to, and he went out to Arizona Territory, not yet a state, to the near the town of Flagstaff in northern Arizona. He bought a parcel of land on a hill outside of town, which is now to this day named Mars Hill, and built a private observatory. He had tons of dough. In fact, the Lowell Family Trust still runs this. It is the, one of the oldest fully endowed private observatories in the world. It's dedicated primarily these days to planetary astronomy. But in the day of Lowell, he was thinking primarily of using it to look for Mars. He bought his own telescope. There's Lowell's telescope with Lowell himself sitting at it. This is a very large refracting telescope which gave him remarkably clear views. He spent two decades living in Flagstaff and observing and mapping the surface of Mars, eventually working with his assistants to do so. He took the idea of Schiaparelli's canale as canals. He thought that they, in fact, were purpose-built structures. And he proceeded to publish in a series of years, late 19th century, early 20th century, a series of articles in which he gave maps of these extensive canal systems on Mars, mapping out their locks, their interconnections, and speculating, in fact, that these were purpose-built by Martians, intelligent creatures living on Mars, 
that they were living on a mostly desert world and they were bringing water from the poles down to the dry equatorial regions. These are some of his hand sketches from some of his observations of Mars showing these very strong linear canals, some of them parallel in their motions. A beautiful globe that you can go see in the Smithsonian Institution that's of, that he had made. And of course, one of his maps using the nomenclature of Schiaparelli and then this extensive systems of canals. He really popularized. Lowell was a very good writer. He was very well respected. He was, had a lot of money, so he was able to get his message out there. And he popularized the idea of Mars being inhabited by intelligent beings at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Many people took Lowell's observations of these canals very seriously. That seriousness, however, was not shared by all of Lowell's colleagues. Not everybody saw the canals, or some people thought what they saw, what they thought were linear features, but didn't see them as persisting, didn't really believe they were long and straight, never really saw the structures that Lowell saw. It's hard to understand now today what Lowell was seeing. Uh, some speculations are that he was seeing patterning on the back of his eye. That, you know, when you get a pupil matched into your eye in a certain way, you can actually get a reflected image of the uh, network of, of blood vessels at the back of your eye. Perhaps he was just seeing what he wanted to see. It's really very hard to tell. But that's more of a problem of psychology, of perception, than it is of actual science. It was a very controversial idea at the time and remained controversial for years, but it stuck in the public consciousness. In fact, Lowell's canals uh, really persisted as an idea into the 1960s. The idea that Mars was a wet world, it had water on it, at least standing water somewhere, that it had vegetation cycles and seasons, that it might even have life is obviously an idea which has just embedded itself and drilled itself into the popular culture. Of course, there's 1898, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, which we've mentioned before. In 1917, Edgar Rice Burroughs of Tarzan fame wrote a series of Barsoom novels on Mars. We didn't worry how John Carter got there, but he got there. And of course, there were beautiful princesses and various things going on. So they were great stories and slightly silly. Yet Mars had a simple breathable atmosphere, and weather and everything else. Of course, The War of the Worlds radio drama in 1938, which we've mentioned earlier in the class. Ray Bradbury's classic novel, The Martian Chronicles, which posed a, a, a dead, or maybe not so dead, uh, superior civilization on Mars. And of course, right up to 1961, Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, a, a book I'm sure many of you have probably read, again, about a human boy raised by intelligent Martians. And of course, Marvin, 1948, just after World War II there, one of the f most famous of the Looney Tunes characters. But beyond the popular culture embedding, it also had a lasting effect on science right up to and until the time of the first spacecraft visits to the planet in the 1960s. This is an article from the magazine Science. This is the main journal of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a serious referee journal. In 1962, Frank Salisbury of Colorado State University wrote a very thoughtful article on Mars biology. He said one of his statements here that the Martian organisms should present a broad, flat surface to sunlight during the day. A leaf seems ideally suited. If this leaf could curl up into a cylinder at night, this would cut down on nighttime heat loss by radiation. He was actually making a serious discussion of what are the conditions on Mars based on the best telescopic observations of the day? What should we be expecting for life living under those circumstances? The assumption under all of these scientific investigations, and they were very serious, was that Mars had liquid water on its surface. That its atmosphere was just heavy enough, the atmospheric pressure was just heavy enough, that despite the coldness, you could still have liquid water somewhere on the surface of Mars. Here's an illustration of where that comes from. You'll recognize this picture from your homework due tomorrow. This is the phase diagram for water. 
It plots temperature on the x-axis in Kelvin and pressure on the vertical axis. And what it shows are the three regimes, solid, liquid, and vapor, for the three phases of water. And we'll ignore the high-pressure phases, which get into basically really wacky high-pressure frozen ices and the funky critical point here. The triple point is where all three phases coexist simultaneously. For reference, one atmosphere of the Earth, the Earth has got a, a ground temperature of around 300 Kelvin and sits right there where water is solidly, solidly, excuse me, water is very definitely in the liquid part of the phase diagram. So we expect that liquid water is stable on the Earth, that it simply transitions between getting warm and evaporating in the vapor phase, getting cold and freezing. As your temperature goes up and down, you basically go back and forth along this line of constant pressure on the Earth. Now, the problem of observing Mars is it's very challenging to observe Mars' atmosphere. It's thin, and it has similar composition in terms of carbon dioxide and water vapor, what you can measure in absorption spectra, to the Earth. So you have to subtract off the tremendous contribution of those gases looking up through the Earth's atmosphere, and then look for the tiny blips from Mars' absorption spectrum of carbon dioxide and water vapor in its atmosphere. That's really hard. And when I was researching this talk, I was really surprised how a lot of the astronomers who were the senior astronomers professors when I was coming up in graduate school, early in their careers in the 1950s, had actually taken on this challenge of measuring Mars' atmosphere. It was a huge scientific problem. Early estimates in the pre-spacecraft era, and this is going right up to 1963 now, put the pressure of Mars here at basically about somewhere between 3.5 and 8.5 and millibars of pressure. For reference, the, the Earth's atmosphere is, a, is about um, a bar of pressure. So what we see is this pre-spacecraft observations show a much lower pressure, much thinner atmosphere. It appeared to be mostly carbon dioxide. There was very tantalizing evidence of water vapor. But if you bought into the pressure estimates, and they were really hard, then you've got pressure ranges which still allowed a fairly narrow temperature regime where liquid water could exist. So you can imagine low-lying regions where the air pressure is a little higher, just like in Death Valley, the air pressure is higher than it is up on tall mountains, that the pressure might be just high enough, and if it's just warmed enough by the sun, you might actually get liquid water, or you might get it at or very near the surface. So the idea that liquid water could exist as a stable phase appeared to be allowed by the best pre-spacecraft -te pre telescopic observations from the Earth. But there were huge uncertainties, huge measurement uncertainties in this because it was such a terribly difficult measurement. The precision was not as high as you would have liked. It's amazing how much literature was spent on this. Well, the story really changed in 1965 when the first spacecraft ever sent to Mars to successfully return pictures, Mariner 4, launched in 1964, flew by the Red Planet in 65 and kept on going, came within 6,000 kilometers of the surface of Mars and returned pictures that showed Mars heavily cratered. The, the few dozen photographs or video camera images it was able to send back before we lost contact with it showed Mars to be a dry, heavily cratered world, which showed that the surface terrain was very old. There was also no sign in those images of the Canali. Now, they weren't as extensive a mapping of the planet. You could only get pictures for just so long during the flyby, but no sign of, of Lowell's canals. Two more spacecraft, Mariner 6 and Mariner 7, were dispatched to Mars. Mariner 6, both, Mariner 6 and 7 were both flybys. Mariner 7 failed shortly, after fly, shortly during flyby. Mariner 6 made a successful flyby and measured the atmosphere. And then finally, in 1971 and 72, Mariner 9 was sent. 
It then fired its rockets and dropped into orbit around Mars. It was the very first spacecraft ever to orbit another world. So it was a big achievement from that. When it arrived, unfortunately, arrived a couple days in advance of Mars 3 and Mars 4, which were two orbiters launched by the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, they all arrived during a massive global Mars dust storm and could see virtually nothing on the surface of the planet. The Soviet mission, one of them failed. The other one had only just enough life in it, but was never able to take pictures except during the dust storm. And on Friday, I misspoke. I misremembered, because I, I, I was really became conscious of the program about 71, 72. I was really into this stuff. Mariner 9 was thought to be a disaster because, oh my God, there's nothing to see because of the global dust storm. But in fact, the dust storm did eventually wear down. And later on, Mariner 9 was able to achieve very clear images of the surface of the planet. It discovered the Olympus Mons volcano. It discovered the Valles Marineris Canyon system. And it even began to see signs of ancient liquid flows, but it showed the heavily cratered highlands, the lightly cratered lowlands, much of the desert terrain that we know today. Mariner 9 pretty much ended all discussion there was about Mars having liquid water standing on its surface or a substantial atmosphere or canale. You really don't hear about the Martian canals except in historical references like in this class and the total crank literature, which you can find by Googling. And believe me, I Google. <laughs> oh my, there's a lot of that stuff out there. So let's go back to this diagram. The other big thing with the spacecraft is the spacecraft don't have the problem of looking up through the Earth's atmosphere to measure the, the Martian atmosphere. There's a lot of tricks you can use, whereas the spacecraft flies by, the radio signals graze through the atmosphere of Mars, and you can measure the attenuation of the radio signals from Earth, and you can actually measure the atmosphere very, very effectively that way. That was done with Mariner 6 and Mariner 7, and it was found that the pressure on Mars was way, way lower than anyone had been able to measure before on Earth. It's almost a factor of 10 lower, in fact, than the previous estimates. That drop by a factor of 10 is really crucial because the Mariner 6 and 7 line, the red line here in the phase diagram, shows that, remember, you, when you're on the phase diagram, you march back and forth in temperature along this line of constant pressure, along the so-called isobar in the diagram. There's only two possible phases for water in this part of the diagram. You're either a solid or you sublime directly into a vapor. Now maybe, just maybe, you're right here at the tip. So maybe in a deep depression where the atmospheric pressure is a little higher, you might get a little teeny tiny bit of liquid water stable on the surface. But the basic conclusion by, by 1971, 1972, was that Mars was bone dry, that liquid water could not exist stably on the surface, except maybe transiently, like after a meteor impact, melted a bunch of stuff. So this really changed the whole question about life on Mars, because now one of the prerequisites for life, liquid water, stable liquid water, was not to be found on the present day Mars. So it's a big change, and it really changed how people thought about this. But of course, planning was going on ahead for the next level of Martian mission, and that was not simply to go into orbit around the planet, but actually put a lander on its surface equipped with biological machinery. Before that, there's one question I want to get into. So what is it, what were the canals? Well, the answer were they were optical illusions. Like we can say that now with, with great certainty. Which optical illusion? We don't know. But there's a lot of other things on Mars that caught people's attention. You know, the human visual system is remarkably good at, at matching patterns. In fact, we have an amazing way of recognizing faces and things that don't actually have faces. You know, we can see clockbacks that look like sad, droopy faces. We can see faces in clouds. And in fact, we can see a face on Mars. 
This is in the Cydonia plane. It was an image taken by the Viking 1 orbiter. It was the orbiter that carried the Viking 1 lander with it in 1976. And Cydonia is a fairly large plane with a few buttes on it. And you can see this picture I've shown here in white. That looks an awful lot like a face. You can see the eyes, the nose, the mouth, and it's half in shadow. This caught a lot of attention. This caught a lot of really wacky attention, but in fact, so much so that there's even a cult that seems to be associated with the face on Mars. This is obviously a man, or sorry, Martian-made uh, monument of, of gigantic proportions. They started seeing in some of the other buttes, oh, look, there's uh, pyramids and other stuff. This is the lost city of Mars. There's a guy named Richard Hoagland who does a lot of this stuff. When the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter went there in 2007, took a very deep image of this thing, shows it's a butte. Here's a uh, radar altimetry, ver or laser altimetry version of that, now shown in vertical relief. And in fact, yes, I suppose you can stare at that and see, yeah, there's the eye, there's part of it. But in fact, it's just basically a little butte sitting out in the middle of this plane. People can see pretty much what you want to in almost anything that you see on the surface of Mars. Why, we can play this game all over the place. There's the Gala Crater. Clearly a very happy crater. Uh, you can see a smiley face in there. And of course, this one came out in Astronomy Picture of the Day a few years ago on, of course, Valentine's Day. It's a collapse feature down known as the Mars Heart. So we should know that Mars is, in fact, the happy planet, and it loves you. All right, let's get back to life. The Viking 1 and 2 landers were purpose-designed to address the question of whether there was life on Mars. It was pretty clear that we were not going to be expected to be greeted by Marvin and, and rest in the shade of very large, unfurled Martian leaf plants. So we were going to have to be looking for microscopic life, if life existed at all. We know that microbiological life can live even in the driest deserts of the Earth, provided there's even a little liquid water. The data on Mars show that there should be a water content on Mars, although it's probably not stable at the surface you could get substantial subsurface water, so-called permafrost. So the idea of the experiments was fairly simple. It had a long arm on it, and you can sort of see the picture of bright lights in here making it a little bit bright. Let's see if I can cut this light off here for just a second with spots. There we go. You can see there this trench. It had basically a trenching tool at the end of an arm. You can see one piece of it there on there that would dig into the ground. In fact, in one case, it dug underneath a rock. Underneath the ground, you will be protected from ultraviolet radiation. There may be subsurface water. It then picked up that rock sample and dumped it into a little portable biology laboratory that was a robotic laboratory stored on board. The, the biological laboratory could perform four experiments. Three in particular basically looked at chemistry, which was showing carbon assimilation, that there was something inside the soil that was taking up carbon, just like something eating carbon on the Earth, or some kind of, of chemo uh, heterotroph, or in this case, autotrophs. So you're looking for autotrophy. You're looking for gas exchange. Remember, organisms on the Earth breathe in carbon dioxide and respirate out oxygen if there's photosynthesis going on. You do with something called labeled release, where you actually release nutrients, carbon, and water into the soil, which have been tagged with radioactive carbon-14, and then you look for that carbon-14 uptake or return as you see the output of, say, metabolism. So these three experiments were looking for signs of biochemical-like metabolism, and they were tested on terrestrial soil samples. And there were ways to get positives and negatives, looking at, say, really dry Antarctic circles, the dry Atacama Desert, and so forth. The fourth instrument was a mass spectrograph. It wasn't looking for biological or metabolic processes per se, but it is able to do a complete chemical assay of the soil material and look for organic molecules, look for organic compounds, the complex chemistry of life. It had carried with it uh, liquid water in containers, so you would spray liquid water. 
warm the soil up. You notice that warm, warmth, for example, often lets bacteria and things grow, so it almost tried to do a little culture medium. The water contained nutrients, things that could act as nutrients for microbiological life, carbon, basically organic carbon compounds. And you tag them so you know what you're putting in and look for something different out. The first three of these things found search for evidence, again, of uptake and metabolism of carbon when the soils were heated or flooded with nutrient solutions. The results were very conflicting, and they left a lot of unanswered questions. It got a lot of attention early on, and since it's been uh, still a matter of vigorous discussion now nearly 34 years later. Carbon assimilation and gas exchange results actually gave positive results. They saw a sudden flood of oxygen coming off of the stuff, but that could also be explained by an abiological process if this soil was containing very strong oxidants, in particular iron peroxide or perhaps other oxidants in the soil, and that by putting water on the soil, what you did was you released this bound up oxygen from the oxidants. That's one possibility. Remember, the soil of Mars is red because it is basically iron oxide. So the worry is that your experiment released oxygen not because of photosynthesis or metabolism, but because of just simple inorganic chemistry. The second thing is the labeled release experiment gave a sudden burst of oxygen when the sample was wetted, but it gave no further response when you added the nutrient solution. So this one's pretty ambiguous. It showed, in fact, the uptake or the, the, the release of, of oxygen that looked like a metabolic process, but when you tried to send nutrients at it, it kind of shrugged. It didn't do anything. So it's a very ambiguous response. But what was really interesting was while you got all these responses, the spectrograph found no organic molecules in the soil. In fact, it was 10 million times less organic content than the, the nearly almost inorganic soils on the, most inorganic soils on the Earth. Factor of 10 million is big. That's a lot of zeros sitting out there, and so it really gets you to worry. Well, what's going on here if you have no organic chemistry? Now, the first, again, the, the carbon assimilation and gas exchange, actually it's carbon, called carbon pyrolysis and gas exchange experiments, are now believed to be in just that. They basically were um, release of oxygen from, from, ox, from oxidizers deep inside the soil. The labeled release experiment has its partisans for and against. It's an ambiguous result. It's pretty clear we've got to go back and do these experiments again. And that's, in fact, part of the planning going on for the next generation of Mars missions. So first attempt to look for life biochemistry came up with a big question mark. Probably not is the result. Most people would say the consensus is that the Viking landers did not find evidence of life on Mars. But there's one or two results which are sufficiently ambiguous that we really can't come down and say no with any certain we can say no but okay so that was one line of evidence the other line of evidence has come about in Mars life in recent years is a somewhat more indirect argument and I, I'm sure many of you heard about this it was about oh gosh 1996 some of you were probably pretty young for then but it still comes up in common conversation today there's a meteorite called ALH84001. It's a meteorite found in Antarctica that turns out to be an ancient rock from the planet Mars. Turns out there is a class of meteorites which are in fact confirmed chemically to be Mars rocks. The way they got to Earth is basically a meteor strike on Mars, knocked a bunch of rock off that actually went into orbit around the Sun and eventually crossed the orbit of Earth and landed on Earth. That sounds outlandish, but in fact, it's perfectly plausible. In fact, it seems to happen with relative frequency. I mean, these things are pretty rare, but it can, in fact, happen. Remember, Mars is only one-half the radius of Earth and roughly one-ninth of its mass. 
So if you put those numbers together, it's got about four times less gravity than on the Earth. So it's actually not, and it's got a very, very thin atmosphere. So it's not too hard to knock rocks off the surface and knock them up into solar orbit. It, it actually can happen. And we've identified a number of meteorites which have basically the isotopic abundances in the, in the trapped gas properties that look like the combination of trapped gases on the planet Mars. So they are highly plausible, Marsh, plausibly Martian in origin. We also, by the way, find meteorites on the Earth that were from the moon, knocked off the moon. Knocking meteorites off the Earth is a much more difficult proposition. Our gravity is bigger and our atmosphere is heavier. So most meteor strikes burn up in the atmosphere rather than coming straight in. Now, the best place to find these, of course, is to say, well, how would I recognize that rock over there is different from all the rocks in a field? Turns out most of the Martian meteorites we know of don't come from the Earth. They come uh, from regular places on the Earth. Of course, they come from the Earth. They're meteorites. Where they come from is the Antarctic where these things are sitting out on top of the ice, or they get buried under the ice and then pushed up by glacial action. In fact, every summer season down in Antarctica, there are groups of geologists and astrobiologists who go out and go around picking up the rocks that have fallen on, either fallen on fresh on the Antarctic ice or have been pushed up for that from down landfalls a long time ago. And in the case of this one from the Allen Hills region of Antarctica, hence the name ALH, it was found in a 1984 expedition, and it was the first one they found, so it's ALH 84001, hence its name. Analysis of this for radioactive elements showed that it's approximately four and a half billion years old, which is back when Mars was probably in a wet state. It contains an isotopic mixture of Mars gases, and it shows some evidence in the chemistry of its contents for having undergone the presence of chemistry in liquid water, meaning hydrated minerals, before it you know, got blasted off of Mars, and also finds carbonate crystals. So you see some kind of chemistry going on of hydrated water with carbon dioxide type chemistry. It also seems to have some other content, which is of interest to us. In 1996, a series of analyses were completed and then published to great press fanfare that, in fact, sections of this particular Mars, chunk of Mars, may in fact contain fossil microbial life. Part of what people were doing by studying this, this, this rock in detail was trying to learn what a Mars rock looked like to be able to design the next generation of robotic geological experiments. It's nice to have an example, and nature has nicely provided us with a couple. There are four major pieces of evidence that are given for possible biological activity or past biological activity present in ALH 84001. The first of these is a chemical experiment. They basically found the presence of, of a series of molecules called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or these sort of chicken wire-looking carbon, chi carbon cyclic molecules shown over here on the right. They also found amino acids, a combination of left and right-handed amino acids, many of them fairly degraded in this, astro in this uh, chunk of rock. So this is the first piece. You find complex organic compounds. The second piece is that some of the carbonate grains that are found inside are layered. And this kind of layering of carbonate grains is similar to what is found in layered structures produced by terrestrial bacteria. So they found similar layerings like you would get from carbonate uptake by bacteria, leaving behind these sort of layered remnants. We see that certainly in some microfossil sites. We also find in them so-called magnetite crystals. Magnetite are little magnetic crystals. They're iron crystals iron-containing crystals, which are magnetic, and they are often found inside of Earth bacteria. This picture up here on the top is a chain of magnetite crystals in a terrestrial bacterium, and down below is a similar chain in the lower picture here, similar chain found inside of some interesting-looking structures inside the meteorite from Mars. 
So the idea is that perhaps these magnetite crystal arrays are leftovers from a Martian bacterium, which has long since vanished from the structure of the meteorite. And that was certainly one of the interpretations put forward. And finally, the one that got all the attention is they saw some very small structures, sort of nanoscale structures that looked very much like very tiny bacteria. And you can see them down here on a section of the rock that's been opened up as if they've been growing inside. They are much, much smaller than any terrestrial nanobacteria that we have ever found. Now, the problems with this, of course, were immediately obvious. The first of all is that this thing has been on the planet for 10,000 years in the Antarctic ice. There may have been plenty of time for this rock to be contaminated with terrestrial um, compounds, terrestrial organic compounds. Part of the counterargument for that is some of the isotopic ratios in the carbon compounds are not like that found in terrestrial carbon compounds. But it's a very, very hard measurement to make, and it's hard to really control for contamination unlike what you could do if you brought back a fresh Martian sample where you could tightly control what it's been encountering all the way along the line. There's also a lot of different abiological explanations for all of these structures which have not been ruled out. Still remains controversial to this day what the lesson of ALH84001 is. I will confess to being somewhat in my agnostic phase with respect to this right now. This is not a terribly informed decision, I will confess to, but it nonetheless is my opinion that the answer to this, I think the current answer is, oh, kind of probably not. But, you know, there's still enough ambiguity. There's like, if it was just one thing, I would say, yeah, no. No, no, no reason to talk about it further. But that it's four fairly strong indicators of possible biological activity all together at once. That seems unlikely, but, you know, there are other unlikely things that can happen as well. That's why I'm going to sort of remain agnostic from this. It's tantalizing. It tells us something we might want to go looking for. If nothing else, the kind of analyses tells you what you can get out of a rock. I think this is actually quite surprising, and this is the interesting lesson. You can learn a lot from a rock. Even a rock that you think has been you know, blasted through space, hung out for a few million years before falling to Earth. There's still information there because there is the possibility of fossil bacteria leaving behind the complex organic molecules, leaving behind structures that are part of the organization property of life. Remember, life organizes its contents. These kinds of self-organization in nature are very difficult. They take energy. What is life but little energy machines that can do these little sort of de-entropizing their surroundings? And finally, sometimes things do leave behind fossils. So even if maybe the ALH84001 is not actual direct evidence of life on Mars, it suggests what we should be looking for when we go there again and look at the Martian rocks. And especially since we think now that Mars was warm and wet in its past, we should really be thinking about experiments that will look for fossil life, like fossil life on the Earth. Mars may be, because Mars is less geologically active, it's going to be much, much better preserved than the Earth is in that regard, much further back. Most of the Earth's microfossils have been destroyed along with most of its crust. Remember, most of the crust of the Earth is 200 million years old or younger. Whereas on Mars, most of the crust is in fact billions of years old. It was less geologically active. So it's not crazy, but whether it's correct, that's different. There's a lot of crazy things out there that are right. Some of them, they're pretty wrong. More recent evidence of possibility of life on Mars, again, this is kind of sketchy. We're looking for organic processes. In, in 2004, a group of astronomers using ground-based telescopes announced that they had detected methane, CH3, oh, that's wrong, Pff, should be CH4. Well, that, got, that, that one slipped through QA. Um, 
Basically, they detected methane in the atmosphere of Mars using ground-based telescopes. The big telescopes, of, like the Keck telescope, for example, up on Mauna Kea, and the infrared telescope facility, a smaller infrared telescope. Methane has very strong absorption bands in the near-infrared part of the spectrum, and so it gives a very characteristic spectral signature. Now, the reason why this is so exciting is methane can only survive about 300, 350 years in the Martian atmosphere, given the conditions that prevail in the Martian atmosphere. The primary chemical reaction that occurs is if you have any, any oxygen around at all that can come off of you know, like breaking apart water with ultraviolet radiation, then you can get methane plus oxygen goes to water and carbon dioxide. So it breaks down and degrades in the atmosphere very, very rapidly. But because it's got a very strong absorption feature, even if it's there in parts per billion, you can detect it. And they detected it pretty clearly. The original detection was pretty marginal, but this uh, map here of Mars and the Martian release is really quite remarkable. It's, it's really... Very solid now. The problem is, of course, methane, what you would like to think is methane comes from biological processes. There's a whole class of bacteria on Earth called methanogens that is part of their internal metabolism. Don't belch out oxygen, they belch out um, methane. In fact, some of those bacteria live inside the stomachs of cows, people, and, well, you belch or otherwise release methane as a consequence of the metabolism of, of food, of anaerobic bacteria. These are oxygen-free bacteria living in your guts. So that's certainly one tantalizing thing. If you see methane, methane is considered to be a biomarker. Remember this, everybody, because we're going to be looking for methane biomarkers in other places when we start looking for the biomarkers in planets around other stars. So this is an important one. To find it on Mars was really a surprise. Now, there's other probable sources. One is that there could be comets can bring in methane. They bring in frozen methane isis from the outer solar system. Maybe there was a comet strike, a small one, on Mars sometime in the last three centuries. We wouldn't see the remnants of it anymore, but maybe the methane's still rolling around the atmosphere. Uh, volca oops. Volcanoes are a source of methane. They carry methane up from the deep interior and release it into the atmosphere. We certainly see methane in small quantities in Earth, in Earth um volcanoes. But that would suggest that that's true, that there are still little pockets of very, very low-level volcanism on Mars, which would be very, very surprising if that's the result. And that tells us there may be places of interior warmth that might be places to warm up water and get you some liquid deep underground. So this could be a, a signpost of that. We just don't really know yet. And of course, biological processes have been suggested. Again, you know, it's, it's sort of going to become maddening. The whole question of life on Mars is, seems to be a question without an answer. More tantalizing evidence of something very interesting is going on Mars. The finding of methane, free methane in the atmosphere, was very, very unexpected. And so it's something that, again, you want to go out looking for, and it tells you if you're going to design missions going back to Mars to analyze it chemically and geologically, understanding where the methane comes from becomes very, very important. Because it is does have a very plausible and well-known biological source. Certainly a lot of the methane on Earth in the Earth's atmosphere today is almost entirely from biomass. More recently, and your book doesn't cover this because your book was written before this mission went off, in 2008 we landed, put a lander and biological analysis and chemical analysis station down at 68 degrees north latitude on Mars. It was called the Mars Phoenix Lander. It found water ice and perchlorates near the Mars Martian Pole. Okay, so it had a, 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 a trenching tool that dug into the local surface. Here's a beautiful place where it dug into the surface near the pole. Look at the white ices here. Isn't that great? There's carbon dioxide ice here just scraped up just under the surface. It's kind of hard to see. I'm going to kill the lights here a little bit just to make it easy. 
You can see in this picture here, over here in the shadow, are these little white spots here, little chunks of stuff, that four days later, after the sun has shined on them, after being exposed to the surface, are gone. That's water. That's water ice. It's the first absolutely positive detection of chunk water ice under the surface of Mars, but because of the Mars' low pressure, it sublimated away as soon as the sunlight hit it. The other things that were interesting, that was the big result, but the other thing was more, other things they found was they saw water snow falling from cirrus clouds. I didn't know this until I read the article just last this weekend. Wow, that's totally cool. They actually saw it snow on Mars. Now, we're talking about tiny crystals and coming out of cirrus clouds, not big billowing cumulus like on Earth, but it shows you there's a little bit of a weather cycle, a little bit of a water cycle of sorts on Mars, although it's a place where it's vapor to solid. Maybe there's a little bit of liquid going on, but it's hard to say. Detailed chemical analysis of some of the soil found calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate is a, is a, is a direct tracer. It's a chemist can only be formed by carbon dioxide gas chemistry of carbon dioxide dissolved in liquid water and brought into contact with calcium. Now, this doesn't mean that pools of water are like oceans, but it could, in fact, occur with carbon dioxide dissolved into thin films of nearly liquid water reacting with calcium to form calcium carbonate. You don't form calcium carbonate any other way that we know of. So this is very, very important result because it shows the same kinds of water and carbon dioxide chemistry we've seen writ large on Earth still occurs on Mars. And finally, this is a really interesting result, which is underappreciated. They found perchlorate salts. Perchlorates are basically some other element with chlorine O4. So sodium perchlorate, magnesium perchlorate are good examples of this. Sodium perchlorate is a strong oxidant. Remember the problem of oxidation and strong oxidants in the soil of Viking 1 and 2. Such a strong oxidant has an interesting property. You mix perchlorate salts with water, it lowers the freezing point so that you could actually get flowing water. You change the phase diagram for liquid water. So you could actually get water flowing when exposed to the surface at very, very low temperatures, below which would freeze pure water, which is what that phase diagram is for pure water. So this has all kinds of interesting possibilities. It's a place where oxygen is tied up in the, in the soil. <coughs> it has strong implications for how water is sequestered, sequestration in the soil, and it will affect whether water in humidity, if you will, the water, uh, saturated water content or near saturated water content of both soil and atmosphere. It may, in fact, explain why there's occasional views of sudden gully flows on Mars. So it's a really important result. It only come out in the last couple months. So future missions to Mars are going to be focused on ex following up all of these various experiments. There are going to be biochemical laboratories like the Mars Science Laboratory, which was hoped to be launched in October or December of 2011. It will go to a site which had past water on the planet and be searching in detail for the climate and geology of Mars. It wants to do all the Viking experiments, only more and better, and on a rover about the size of a small car. So the idea is go for the water, go for the interesting stuff. It even carries a laser to zap rocks to do flash spectroscopy. It's an amazing machine if it actually works. Good luck. Beyond 2011, NASA and ESA have very bold plans for going back to Mars. 
a rock sample return mission to really get something fresh rather than processed through meteoritic, a full astrobiology rover, which will have an even more detailed set of experiments informed by the results from the Mars Science Laboratory, and finally deep drilling missions to go deep into the planet to look for subsurface water.